pointing at me. Here we go. <laughs> As a kid, we'd make frequent trips to my grandmother's house. My cousins, my brothers, family and I would go out into a rural part of our hometown and go to grandma's house. And as we entered in often when we came in, my grandmother would have there splayed across the large dining room table a puzzle. The puzzle would be disarrayed, all the pieces scattered across the big table. And as family members passed through grandmother's house, they would take whatever time they had and place a piece or two into the puzzle. And we would, over the course of weeks, months, as a family, quote unquote, put put this puzzle together. So whatever the going rate of large, massive puzzles is, a thousand, two thousand pieces, this is what was there each time we entered into grandma's house. And I remember being particularly frustrated at times when I would go into grandma's house and I would go over to the puzzle and start to put a piece in and realize that there was no picture to look at. Someone would move the puzzle box, put some mail on top of it, put it under the table or wherever they had put the puzzle box, it was missing. And I would grow increasingly frustrated when that happened because the job at hand, the task at hand was increasingly difficult without it, right? As we move throughout the book of Matthew and as we near to the end of the book of Matthew, I'm reminded frequently of those days with the missing puzzle box because the events, the conversations, the uh, scenarios we see in the book of Matthew tend not to make a lot of sense isolated from the grander narrative, the bigger picture, a point of reference that we ought to keep in mind as we read about these events. This is especially true Concerning this bigger picture, a grander narrative, the pieces not making sense, this is especially true in our passage today from Matthew chapter 27. If you have a copy of scripture with you, turn with me to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's one available to you underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to use that this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. So on the uh, table in the back, you'll see a sign there that says free Bibles, and you can feel free to pick one up on your way out and take that with you. If you're brand new to reading the Bible, as you turn to the book of Matthew, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers, smaller numbers or verses. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27, 11 through 31. Verses 11 through 31. So read along silently as I read the passage aloud. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not know how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. This morning in our passage, we'll see that we are to follow our King Jesus in the way of service and sacrifice. That we are to follow our King Jesus in the way of service and sacrifice. And we'll look at this passage, 11 through 31, in three different parts. First, we'll see in 11 through 14 that Jesus is a king of a different kind. Jesus is a king of a different kind. Second, in 15 through 26, we'll see a Savior who becomes a substitute. A Savior who becomes a substitute. And 27 through 31, we'll see majesty that's subjected to mockery. Majesty that's subjected to mockery. So in the passage today, a clearer picture begins to emerge about how Jesus will be tried, or accused, tried, and then ultimately killed. Already the religious leaders of the day have filed their charges. Remember, we've been talking about this. These charges and claims of blasphemy. This man claims to be the Messiah. The one who has come to save people from their sins. God himself. And now the religious leaders will essentially hand the case over to Rome's political authorities for them to carry out the process by which Jesus will be killed. So interestingly, we find that the religious aspect of Jesus' claims, his claims to messianic leadership, the religious aspects are not the only reason that people in Jerusalem are offended, are threatened by Jesus' presence. We find here in verse 11, at the beginning of our passage today, a question that is not only religious in nature, but it's primarily political. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And what is meant by this? He's asking, basically, have you come now to rule over these people who are in your midst, these people that you live among? Have you come now to displace the governmental authorities, the civic rulers who are in place? Have you come as an earthly king? Are you the king of the Jews? The chief priests, the elders, the standing religious authorities of the day have sought to have Jesus killed and the avenue by which they will now do that is by emphasizing the implications of Jesus' claims politically. Basically, what they're endeavoring to do here is to have as many people offended as possible. So the charges against Jesus stack up on top of one another, on top of one another, on top of one another. And what we know, peeling back from the narrative, knowing this about Jesus, knowing this about Scripture, is that Jesus did claim to come as a messianic and kingly ruler, And this posture offended, we see here in the text, the governor, Pontius Pilate, who we see. More than that, more than the mere governor, Jesus' claims also offended Caesar. We have the emperor, Tiberius, 
And he's also offended by Jesus' presence and his teaching. And we know that Jesus has come, and he is indeed coming to establish a kingdom, right? Perhaps you remember these words from Matthew chapter 3 when we preached it a really long time ago. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, when Jesus came, inaugurating his ministry and proclaimed these words, repent, turn from your sin, change your life. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was certainly coming to inaugurate, to establish a kingdom. So point one in our passage today is that though he was coming to establish a kingdom, Jesus is a king. He's a king of a different kind. That Jesus is a king of a different kind. We see here that Jesus' kingship threatened the political order, threatened those within the political order because it required something of them. That they couldn't sit idly by and allow Jesus to do what he was doing and go on as if life was normal. So we often hear this phrase kind of tossed around in our culture, and perhaps you've heard it. You've heard the phrase of people attempting to speak truth to power. Sort of this uprising of a more democratic kind of togetherness amongst the people who is now going to use their momentum to now speak truth into the halls of power, where power is being misused or abused. We're going to change the narrative, is their their case. We find here in the text that Jesus' intent is not to speak truth to power. The problem with people in Jesus' day is that he is speaking truth with power. And more than that, more than speaking truth with power, this isn't the only thing that's offensive. Jesus is truth. Do you remember this claim? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He stands in opposition to earthly systems of authority. He is truth. And he's God. He's all-powerful. He's not speaking truth to power. He's speaking truth with power. He is truth. He is all-powerful. The earthly authorities he encounters often feel threatened by both Jesus' presence and his teaching. And hear this today, that the earthly authorities around Jesus feel threatened not only by his presence, but his teaching also. And these are realities we ought not forget as followers of Jesus. On occasions when we feel it's particularly important to stand our ground, remain firm in our convictions, though our Savior was humble, He let out in meekness. He endured suffering as a means of serving. Jesus is perceived as a threat, but not by just anyone. Jesus is perceived as a threat by those who are given to a certain kind of self-righteousness. He's perceived as a threat by the proud, by the arrogant, by evildoers. These are the people who are threatened by Jesus' presence, his teaching. We're reminded in our day of this otherness that characterizes life within the kingdom of God and that characterizes Jesus' role and rule as a king. If you find that you don't fit well within the categories presented to you on a day-to-day basis in your day-to-day life, or if you find that you're struggling to put your finger on this sort of nuanced thought or belief that you have that sets you apart from a coworker or a friend in conversation, there's a reason for that. When tempted to align Jesus or what it means to follow Jesus squarely one for one with a given worldview on offer or any political philosophy or outlook, we're reminded that Jesus' kingly rule operates on the basis of truth as it's found in God's word. 
and our decisions, therefore, align with the ways and the wisdom of God. As followers of Jesus, we endeavor, we seek on a day-to-day basis to ask better questions. We ask better questions of the dichotomies presented before us. Is it either or, or is Jesus' way altogether different? Does it have to be either or, or is Jesus charting new territory? Informed by God's word and helped by God's spirit and encouraged by brothers and sisters in settings like this, built up by brothers and sisters in settings like this, we seek to make wise and godly decisions that stand at times askew of or directly in opposition to cultural narratives. In doing so, we remain keenly aware, and remember this, and this is on prime display in our passage today. Doing this, we remain keenly aware that our Savior was not always well thought of or well accepted in every crowd he found himself in. So while I can't grant from here today, this morning for you, that it will be easy to follow Jesus, I can safely say that we can be reasonably at ease with doing so, knowing that he'll care for us as we endeavor to do so. Jesus stood apart from the earthly expectations here in Matthew 27 as he approached Calvary. We're going towards the cross and Pilate asks this question, are you the king of the Jews? And we see in the latter half of verse 11, Jesus' answer is pretty vague, fairly unexpected. Jesus says, you have said so. So he's not giving a yes. Jesus said yes, and all of Pilate's pre-assumptions, all that he carries into the conversation will now be confirmed. He said yes, the deal is done, let's move forward. Jesus will be claiming then to come as an earthly king, an earthly ruler who aimed at overthrowing the existing civic authorities. But he didn't answer yes because he didn't mean yes in the way that Pilate meant it. But we find here that he didn't answer no either, because that wasn't true either. For centuries, God's people had been expecting one who would set them free ever since things went awry in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The Old Testament, if you know the story of the scriptures, the story of your Bible, the whole Old Testament recounts the narrative of God's people in persistent rebellion, perpetual longing, waiting for the day that a king would come. And so this is why the question in 11 that Pilate asks is so important. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? What Jesus means to say is yes, but not in that way. But he can't say no here either. The people have been longing for this king, this true deliverer who would come. And despite the people's persistent rejection of God's authority in their lives, we see in Christ that God has now set in place the final pieces of this beautiful, glorious story of redemption, of rescue, of reconciliation. Christ brings the whole together. He's the center of it. This has been the story unfolding throughout the book of Matthew. And here in chapter 27, when Pilate asks, are you king of the Jews? Jesus' claims by this point are well known. And so is the truth concerning his identity. Whether Pilate or a religious leader or anyone else will grant it, Jesus is essentially saying, you already know the answer. You already know the answer. And Jesus at this point, we find, has zero need to defend himself. Those days are done. 
In verses 12 through 14, we see here in Jesus' response or his lack of response, a telling piece of Jesus' story and of the gospel narrative. Let's read 12 through 14. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We see here in Jesus' lack of response to further charges from the religious authorities and crowds gathered that rather than defend himself, he remains silent. Twice the text says plainly that he spoke nothing, said no words. Jesus' lack of response here speaks volumes. Jesus' silence is the kind of silence that you can feel, that you can hear. It's palpable. And so when Jesus doesn't utter a word, he's saying all that needs to be said. Jesus' lack of response speaks volumes of his resolve. The reason Jesus doesn't answer here is because he is committed. He's committed to the very purpose for which he came. He's committed to seek and save the lost, as Luke 19 tells us. He's committed to give his life as a ransom for many, as Matthew 20 tells us. He's committed to not seek his own will, but the will of the one who sent him, John 6. He's committed to give his life so that others like you and me might have life more abundantly and might be saved through him, John 3, 16 and 17. Pilate, for one, when Jesus uttered no words, is taken aback. The text says he was amazed. In this scenario, most often when someone's charged, found guilty of a crime, they would use this space to vie for their release, to prove their innocence, to speak a better word, and yet Jesus says nothing. Pilate was amazed. For those that remembered their scripture memory verse, In Jesus' context, for those that remembered their Bibles, the fact that Jesus said nothing here is not a surprise. It's further confirmation. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in this way concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 7. He wrote, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, So he opened not his mouth. The prophet had already said what would happen. The march to Calvary, the conversations, the events that we see unfolding were already in the script. They're already in the script. Preordained movements and conversations on the way to God's will being fulfilled for the salvation of many. God's plan is unfolding before their eyes and before our eyes also. We see that Jesus is resolved. He's committed He's a willing sacrifice intent we see ultimately on putting himself in the way of the wrath that we sinners deserved. And this exchange, this taking our place, this substitution, this sacrifice is at the heart of these events we're reading about this morning and it's at the heart of gospel proclamation everywhere. In this context on a Sunday morning, in the late night phone call with a family member who you're trying to share with, over coffee or a meal with a neighbor who's warming to the things of God, this substitutionary act, Jesus taking our place, is central to it all. There is no better news than this. That Jesus came and died for you so that your sins would not be counted against you. It's the best news in the world.
We see this picture of substitutionary sacrifice played out in the historical record over and over and over again, all pointing to Jesus. And we see here, too, in our text in the next section, a vivid portrayal of these basic gospel truths. And so point number two, if you're tracking along, is a Savior who becomes a substitute. A Savior who becomes a substitute. Verses 15 through 26 in Matthew 27 recount an event often referred to as the Paschal Pardon in which a prisoner in the community is pardoned and set free. Let's read those verses together, 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so while they had ga- when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him and said, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered so much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests, the elders, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Seeing Jesus, sensing Jesus' innocence in the matter, we see here that Pilate, the Roman governor, begins to sort of peel away. Pilate puts forth both Jesus and a man named Barabbas, and he asked the crowd gathered here, who would you rather me set free? This man, Jesus, who I think is innocent, or this clearly convicted criminal Barabbas? To get a sense of the decision that's before the crowd, it helps to remember the pretty bleak picture we get of who Barabbas actually is. So from the gospel accounts, we see here in our passage in verse 16 that he's called a notorious prisoner. The other gospel accounts indicate that Barabbas was actually involved in some sort of insurrection, that he was convicted of murder. And so the scene here you have before the crowd is that Pilate has put forth a murderer next to Jesus, and he asks the crowd, which will you have go free? We see here, too, and we get the sense in reading it that the scene here is just fraught with uncertainty. Pilate seems less than convinced of Jesus' guilt, but he's still implicated in the process. Pilate's wife comes to him in verse 19, has had a dream is convinced of Jesus' innocence as well and pleads with her husband to have nothing to do with him. And yet the crowd persists, ultimately demanding that Jesus be crucified and the murderer go free. And hear that. That Jesus be crucified and the murderer go free. The crowd stubbornly, willfully, sinfully disregards Jesus' innocence and yet we find, and this is important, we find that the innocence of the one that they are seeking to condemn is actually the key that unlocks the mystery of the gospel for generations thereafter. The innocence of this man that they are seeking to condemn is the key that unlocks the mystery of the gospel for generations thereafter. It's part of the puzzle box. It helps us see the bigger picture, what's going on behind these interactions between these authorities and Jesus in his day. Jesus' innocence is of paramount importance because we have in Jesus' sacrifice this picture 
of what Old Testament sacrifice and New Testament sacrifice actually mean. Following this Old Testament pattern of acceptable and worthy sacrifice, we see in Scripture that a blameless, a spotless, an innocent lamb must be put forth and offered up. This is the way sacrifices occur. The sacrifice is given so that atonement can be made for one's sins. The price for or the debt that one owes because of his sin is now paid by the sacrifice. And we see this pattern carry over into the New Testament as we see a more ultimate picture of sacrifice, of redemption, of forgiveness, of reconciliation take place. Here are a couple of reasons why Jesus' innocence is so important. Because he was sinless, Christ did not owe anyone or anything. He never sinned. We never had to pay for sin. So, he could freely offer himself of his own accord and stand in the gap. It required a perfect sacrifice. Jesus' sinlessness, his perfection, fits the bill. Because he was innocent, Christ also did not deserve death. One who has not sinned does not deserve to die. Jesus did not deserve to die. Thus, he could die freely, of his own accord, and in accordance with the will of the Father to fulfill the purposes of God. You see, having committed no evil himself, remember Pilate asks, what evil has this man committed? And they could find none. Committing no, having committed no evil himself, Jesus will now go to the cross to pay the penalty for the evil done by others, even evil done to himself. You remember when he utters these words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus isn't forgiving evil in general. He's forgiving even evil perpetuated on himself. The end of this particular scene, captured here in verses 24 through 26, appears only in Matthew's gospel account. So as we preach through it, we have an opportunity to sort of double tap and see what Matthew was after. It's evident here that Pilate doesn't wish to be looped in or held responsible for the crowd's decision. He cleanses his hands of the matter we see in 24 through 26. It reads, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was breaking out, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. It's evident Pilate doesn't wish to be implicated in the matter. He cleanses his hands physically as a sign, saying, I'm done with this. But as many have pointed out, he is ultimately the one who later we see flogs Jesus, and then gives him over with instructions for Jesus to be crucified. For this he could not avoid the guilt. That is incurred. The Jewish crowd here takes a different approach in 24 through 26. Out of envy and spite, they claim full responsibility for what's happening. We're reminded that blinded by sin, we too are prone to do the unthinkable. So in this moment, as we read this passage, as we're tempted to look down our noses at a group of people who could do the unthinkable, in a moment where we are tempted to judge, it might be better to ask the better question. We're reminded that blinded by sin, that we too are prone to do the unthinkable. That the pride we see 
exemplified here that would have us thinking that we are beyond a particular kind of evil or a particular sort of sin is pride that if we don't remain vigilant is pride that could go before fall. In both Pilate and in the crowd's case here, 24 through 26, they refuse to recognize that Jesus is the one who can actually free them from their bondage to sin. And so you have this sort of contrast, this sort of irony that we see in Scripture. As Pilate washes Jesus' blood from his hands, and the Jewish crowd seeks to put his blood upon them and receive that guilt, they fail to realize that this blood was actually the blood that was shed for the remission of their sins. Blinded by their sin, neither party can see that the way out is the one that they're condemning. And this is what the bigger episode is about here in Matthew 27, with Barabbas being presented here for release. Hear this, in the case of Barabbas versus Jesus, this whole scenario that we're looking at this morning, Barabbas on one side, Jesus on the other, the sinless one will now be punished. The sinful one will go free. The sinless one will be punished and the sinful one will go free. Jesus, the sinless one, will be punished. He'll be killed. The one who has committed murder, the very worst of sins probably that we could think of, will go free. This would not be the last or even the most significant example of a time when Jesus was the substitute for a guilty party. We have here this picture of the gospel. Lest we be tempted to turn our noses up even at Barabbas' story, the baggage he carries, the great wrongs he has done, we find here occasion to take stock of our own lives. So we have this meta-narrative in Scripture that we all know about. We hear this story that God has created the world, that man fell into sin, that the world is now falling apart, and through Christ, God is now reconciling the world to himself, putting things back together. And we have this grand story, this grand narrative, and imagine that day in the new heavens, the new earth, where we see the puzzle box. All of it put together, like it should be. We have this grand narrative of the gospel in mind. What we're after in considering Barabbas standing next to Jesus is not the gospel out there, but the gospel down here. Because not only is God reconciling things in the world, putting things in the world back together, he's putting you and he's putting me back together. So there's a gospel story out there and there's a gospel story in here. A gospel story that's sort of this meta overall narrative that we can see happening in this big grand picture of life and a gospel that means something for everyone in this room today. Jesus died for your sins, and that changes everything. If he dies for sin in general, that's one thing. But if he stands in the gap and he absorbs the punishment that you and I were owed because of our sin, that changes the game. It's altogether different. And perhaps that's the chasm before you today. Maybe you've been in this setting or one like it time and time again, and you've heard this grand story of this great man named Jesus who came and died for the sins of the world. You've heard of all the great things he has done. You've heard about the resurrection. You've heard about the life that is to come. But attaching that story to your life has been difficult. Perhaps this is the spot that you're in today. 
that these truths about Jesus are not yet true for you. If you're in that spot, the encouragement here is to respond today in faith and know that these aren't merely objective truths. They are that. But they're subjective. They apply to you as well. Respond in faith today. Believe that the debt that you owed for the sins you've committed have been paid for fully by Jesus and place your faith and trust in him today as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're brand new to church. Maybe you've sort of wandered into this place on a whim, saying today's the day that I'm going to check it out. Why don't they have air conditioning? Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith or picking up the Bible for the very first time. We want to say we're really, really glad that you're here. And we hope that you'll keep coming. So we say this often from this place, that we want to engage the conversation, that we want to hear and have the question and ask, answer as many as possible. Want to hear what you're thinking and how you're processing these realities that we talk about from week to week. We're really glad that you're here. We'd love to have a conversation sometime over a meal, coffee. I'll be at the back of the room after service. Perhaps you have a loved one professes to be a follower of Christ. They would love to talk to you. Perhaps you came with a friend. They would love to talk to you. Persist in the conversation and figuring out what it is about this Jesus that is so unique. A more tangible way of pursuing that kind of conversation here at Hope is the Connect card we talked about earlier. Tear that off of your worship guide. Name, email address, just mark. I think there's a conversation prompt on there that you would love to talk more about Christianity. We would love to do that and drop that in the basket as they're passed at the end of service. At the close of our passage here, we see the scene that's being further set for Jesus' crucifixion. The belligerence of the Roman authorities is on display, and I've named this point, the last point of our sermon, point number three, majesty that is subjected to mockery. Majesty that is subjected to mockery. So we see upon Pilate's orders that his soldiers here take Jesus and the governor's headquarters, and the whole battalion of soldiers gathers there. Let's read 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 28, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes and they led him away to be crucified. The impending death of our savior is for this group at the end of our passage today, a spectacle spectacle. We see here a vain demonstration, a false sense of power, a false sense of security on display. They're doing what they think is right. And yet we find here too, and a friend and a local pastor here in Boston, Eric Raymond, has written helpfully and preached helpfully on the topic of what he called ironies that we see at Calvary. And we see some of these ironies emerging in the text here as the soldiers prepare Jesus for the crucifixion. See, blinded to the reality of Jesus' spiritual and more ultimate kingship, they place on him a robe and they fashion for him a crown made of thorns. They put it on his head and they put a reed in his hand. In essence, this group begins to mock what they do not understand. Beware lest we mock what we do not understand. 
For though they fashion a crown from thorns to make fun of Jesus, the thorns are a symbol of the ground that has been cursed. And the one on whom they place this crown will ultimately bear that curse. Galatians 3 says that he bore the sins of the world and became a curse for us and redeemed us from the curse. They place a reed in his hand and failing to realize that this king, his throne is forever and that the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom, Hebrews 1.8. They kneel before him. Did you catch this in verse 29? They kneel before Jesus and jokingly acknowledge him as the king of the Jews while overlooking the fact that, yes, one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, as Philippians 2.10 tells us. They spit on him. An ultimate sign of denigration, disrespect, they strike his head. Ignorant to the reality that the blow to his head pales in comparison to the blow he'll deal to the head of the serpent. As he finally deals sufficiently with sin once and for all. We begin to get this picture that though they stand in complete opposition to Jesus and mock him and the claims that he is making, that the religious leaders, the authorities are subject here, as everyone is, to the sovereignty of God. To the sovereignty of God. Again, in Isaiah 53, the prophet writes, in advance of this day we're reading about who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground, talking about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and listen, by his wounds, we are healed. God's plans will unfold exactly like they're supposed to. And we can take great comfort in that. For Jesus' death, his commitment here, this resolve, this commitment here to go to the cross is Jesus' commitment to us. His death will ultimately mean our shot at deliverance, at freedom, at forgiveness. His suffering makes a way for our salvation. Oswald Chambers once wrote, all of heaven, all of heaven is interested in the cross. And he said, all of hell is afraid of it. And he said, yet men are the only ones to ignore its meaning. Heaven has a response, hell has a response to the cross, and yet men go about their days and forget or ignore its meaning. Jared Wilson adds that there are beautiful ironies in the cross. As they mock him, as we're reading about, as they mock him, they submit to prophecy. As they lift him up, as they will, they actually exalt him. As they kill him, he conquers. He conquers. In this majesty, then, that's subjected to mockery, we embrace now this conquering king. 
this conquering king. So how might we respond today considering this king who is unlike any other king? The savior who is our sacrificial substitute, this majesty subjected to mockery, how should we respond? The first way is to ask the question, where do you stand in relation to God? Where do you stand in relation to God? Perhaps a seasoned believer in the room, you've been going at this for years. You know the well-worn paths of the Christian life. Where do you stand today in relation to God, submitting to his authority in your life, parsing out the pieces of what obedience looks like in your day-to-day? How are you exemplifying the type of sacrificial service that Jesus exemplifies here on his way to the cross and at the cross? How is this fleshing out in our lives? Perhaps you would claim today to not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The same question, where do you stand in relation to God? Perhaps a better question, the one Pilate asked in verse 22. When Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus? who they called the Christ. What will you do with Jesus? Been confronted with the reality of his existence, truths of his sacrificial death, the reality and the truth of his resurrection, the truth of his forthcoming reign forever. What will you do with Jesus? Believer in the room, a second point of application. How does Jesus' posture of sacrificially giving himself shape and influence the way you go about your day-to-day? Every area, all of life. We're looking at how Jesus gave of himself. Are we enamored with getting more of our own out of this life? What area or habit are you asking for the Spirit's help in aligning more with truth as it's found in God's word? What sin might you confess to God and perhaps to a faithful brother or sister as you found it makes your own kind of conditions for making a mockery of Jesus? How are we applying this to our day-to-day lives? Hear this today, church, and we'll pray together that God has been and yet he will be gracious to us. Sinners in need of much grace, and we're reminded in Matthew 27 that this is grace that only our God can give. Let's pray together.